the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Well, today we're going to talk with Gina Delfonso. She's the author of One by One. Welcoming the singles in your church. In the five o'clock hour, we'll also talk with Jason Sneed. He's a policy analyst on the in the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the Presidential Advisory Commission on Election Integrity. They met for the first time today. The vice president is heading up that effort. Uh, we're also going to talk with uh, Thomas Schatz. He's the president of Citizens Against Government Waste. He's also the lobbying affiliate of the uh, uh, the Council for Citizens Against Government Waste. They released their 2017 Congressional Pig Book, the 25th uh, edition, an expose on pork barrel spending in Washington. And this uh, even though there is a moratorium on airmarks uh, that the House passed some five years ago. We'll talk with him about that and what we should make of the information contained in that little pig book. Well, the rather combative president implored Republican senators today not to go on their summer recess until they vote on a bill to repeal rather and replace Obamacare. Now, he didn't offer any um, specific emphasis that he supports or is opposed to, but he did say, I'm ready to act. He told lawmakers at the White House for seven years, you've promised the American people that you would repeal Obamacare. People are hurting. Inaction is not an option. Alluding to the upcoming traditional month-long August recess for Congress, the president said, I don't think we should leave town unless we have a health insurance plan, unless we can give our people great health care. Well, referring to the uh, to reluctant Senator Dean Heller, Nevada Republican seated next to the president, Mr. Trump told the crowd that Mr. Heller will support the new plan to be addressed next week. He wants to remain a senator, doesn't he? Mr. Trump said to laughter. Well, the president warned the GOP lawmakers, four of whom opposed a plan that fell uh, fell apart on Monday night not to vote against debating uh, in uh, a new bill next week. Any senator who votes against starting debate is really telling America that you're fine with Obamacare, the president said. And yes, uh, a yes vote will let senators debate the future of health care and suggest different ways to improve the bill. We are so close. And uh, earlier in the day, Mitch McConnell made the point that uh, all amendments will be heard. Well, Mr. President, Mr. Trump, rather, also took aim at uh, former President Obama for telling Americans that when Obamacare became law, they would be able to keep their current doctors insurance plans, which turned out not to be true. He says it was a lie and he knew it was. And now it's hurting this country irreparably. Well, let's hope not irreparably. But the president said that Democrats are no longer talking about the benefits of Obamacare because he said they know it's a failing system. Premiums are so high that 6.5 million Americans choose to pay a fine to the IRS instead of buying insurance, the famous mandate. Uh, They will pay not to take the insurance. People don't understand that, Mr. Trump said. Well, he said Democrats are obstructionists who can't be counted on to help fix the crisis of Obamacare's failing. Uh, They've gone so far left, he went on to say they're looking for single payer. 
He warned that's what they want, but single payer will bankrupt our country. They have no idea what the consequence will be. It will be horrible, horrible health care where we wait in lines for weeks to get uh, to see a doctor. Well, the president said the health care debate in Congress which has dominated the first six months of his presidency on the Hill, is sapping energy and attention in Washington from other important issues. I'd like the federal government to focus on the Middle East, to focus on North Korea, to focus on things where we have very big problems, he said. The state can be can do better job. Uh, the states can do a better job than the federal government when it comes to health care. Well, as the debate has dragged on. It also has pushed back action on Mr. Trump's economic centerpiece for his first term, and that's tax reform, tax cuts for business and individuals. My message today is really simple. We have to stay here. We shouldn't leave town and we should hammer this out and get it done, he said. And not just the repeal. The people of this country need more than repeal. They need a repeal and replace. Well, the president said the GOP isn't as aggressive as Democrats in promoting their plan. We never sell our plan, he said. We were uh, if we are weak on anything, it's not Letting people know what is good. Well, the president laid out principles for the legislation, repealing the individual mandate that requires people to buy insurance, repealing the employer mandate and allowing insurance to be sold across state lines. Your premiums will come down 60 to 70 percent. Likewise, Senator Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell emerged uh, from the meeting calling on his troops to allow debate next week. He said we'll be voting on the motion to proceed on the House bill. And I have every expectation that we'll be able to get on that bill. That's not passing the bill, but at least get on it. Uh, McConnell said opposition to the procedural motion is the main hurdle right now for Senate uh, Republicans doomed his replacement bill by threatening to block the motion to proceed late Monday. The following day, three Senate Republicans said that they would team with Democrats to bar leaders from proceeding with a fallback plan, pass a repeal bill that guts Obamacare but freezes its impact for two years, buying time for a replacement. Senator Susan Collins of Maine Uh, was the only senator who openly joined both camps. Mr. McConnell said it's uh, better to both repeal and replace, but we could have a vote uh, on either. Well, we'll see what actually happens, but the president has spoken, calling members of Congress to the White House for uh, for meetings earlier today. Now, you might recall yesterday the president threatened to let Obamacare uh, collapse under its own weight and then urged Senate Republicans to eliminate legislative filibusters as a way to advance his agenda after their replacement health care bill derailed. After uh, briefly backing the plan that Senate uh, Republican leadership had passed uh, to pass a repeal of Obamacare and later craft a replacement, he settled on a let it die option that he said would force Democrats to negotiate new health care law. Well, he modified that position uh, in uh, that was expressed later in the meeting held today. So we'll see what happens. Um, as you know, every uh, bill that has a price tag uh, associated with it is ranked rated by the Congressional Budget Office or the CBO. And Investors Business Daily points out that the Senate health care bill uh, f- uh, fell victim to the CBO's incredibly bad uninsured math, saying that the Congressional Budget Office, which has become the official scorekeeper on the impact of health care uh, reform, despite its miserable track record, which certainly is true, said that the Senate repeal and replace bill would leave 22 million more people uninsured by 2027 than if Obamacare remained in place. Before that, it said the much uh, different House repeal and replace bill would leave 23 million more without insurance. The CBO said that simply repealing Obamacare without putting anything else in place would result in 23 million more uninsured. If that seems odd, take a close look at how the CBO got to those numbers and see that they're pretty much worthless. 
Overestimating the individual mandate, the CBO said that getting rid of Obamacare's individual mandate will immediately cause $7 million to drop out of the individual insurance market. But the CBO wildly exaggerated the effectiveness of the individual mandate as it stands, which by all accounts is too small and easily avoidable to be effective. Last year, for example, $6.5 million paid the penalty, which averaged about $470. Nearly twice as many, $12.7 million, claimed one of numerous exemptions from the individual mandate according to the IRS. What's more, the vast bulk of those who enroll through the exchanges are getting heavy, heavily subsidized coverage. 84% get premium subsidized and 60% get additional uh, help to cover out of uh, pocket costs. It's these huge subsidies, not the penalties, that are in the main attraction for those enrolled in Obamacare exchanges. And what about those not eligible for subsidies? Given the huge cost of insurance compared with the relatively puny penalty, it's unlikely that they're buying coverage just to comply with the mandate. The average premium for a family is 12 uh, a plan is $12,252 a year with a deductible of about 8000 In contrast, a family of four making $100,000 a year would pay a penalty of 2085 for not buying insurance, according to healthcare.gov, the penalty calculator. Well, Investor Business Daily goes on in critiquing the CBO's incredibly bad uninsured math. It's worth reading. You can check it out. The article is dated today. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the House Budget Committee unveiled its Building a Better America 2018 budget on Tuesday, which is balanced and achieves a $9 billion surplus in 10 years, increases the GDP growth to 2.6%. Says the... um, uh, committee uh, statement, our budget is one of sustainability, smaller government, stronger national security, and greater freedom for individuals. The status quo is unsustainable, they write, spending higher deficits and debt, higher taxes, bigger government, and more federal control over the lives of Americans. Well, the budget not only balances within a decade, but uh, aims to increase economic growth by implementing tax reforms and reducing government regulation, as well as reforming several government programs to ensure taxpayer dollars are used efficiently and appropriately. Well, the committee noted that under the Obama administration, federal spending grew at a rate that increased the debt at to unprecedented levels. They found that if spending continued along this path in the next 10 years, there would be a $9.4 trillion more added to the debt. Instead, the House is introducing a budget that reigns in the spending and puts the government on a path that will balance in the next decade in order to pay down the debt. Overall, our budget, the committee said, achieves $6.5 trillion in deficit reduction, resulting in a $9 billion surplus in 2027. We do not uh, do this simply by cutting spending and reducing the size of government. Rather, our budget also enables states to find solutions that work for them. And it empowers individuals and small business to increase economic output and unleash the power of the American free market. Well, next, the budget aims to increase economic growth. They say it increases uh, gross domestic product, or GDP. Under the Obama administration, GDP grew at a rate uh, that averaged just 2%. That's the lowest of any previous administration. According to the committee, this is below the historical average of 3% and a rate lower than one that occurred in previous economic recoveries. By reducing red tape on business, reforming various government agencies that burden entrepreneurs, the committee's budget aims to achieve 2.6% 2.6% GDP growth over the next decade. 
Well, tax reform and the repeal of Obamacare also included in the budget as a way to increase economic growth. On tax reform, the budget aims to simplify the tax code, make it fairer, they say, lower tax rates for business and individuals, and lower the corporate tax rate. It also repeals the alternative minimum tax. The budget also plans to repeal Obamacare and replace it with the House's American Health Care Act, whatever that will ultimately look like, which they say will lower the deficit by $204.1 billion over the next decade. Again, the committee uh, states that we estimate that the pro-growth policies of health care reform, tax reform, welfare reform and deficit reduction assumed in our budget will yield economic growth of 2.6 percent on average over the next 10 budget window, 10 year budget window, resulting in one point five trillion dollars in deficit reduction. Well, the budget plans to reform many government programs by evaluating them by the number of people they help instead of throwing more dollars aimlessly at the problem. It also attempts to reduce waste and fraud by reducing the number of improper payments agencies make, which would save the economy $700 billion over the next decade. Now, this sounds very uh, familiar to programs we've heard in the past. They are, they're well-intended, but do they achieve that goal? First of, co- of all, of course, it has to pass, but uh, it's a, a, a challenge to reach uh, the laudable, the, the lofty Um, announced uh, goals of uh, any budget plan. But the committee goes on to say in areas such as health care, welfare, environmental regulation, education, workforce development and transportation, we put federal spending on a budget and empower the states, which are best suited to address the individual needs of their citizens and communities. The result is obvious, they write. Fewer federal tax dollars are needed as we reduce waste, duplication and inefficiencies. Our budget improves outcomes because it gives states, localities and individuals more control over the decisions that affect them directly. Representative Diane Black out of Tennessee, who chairs the budget committee, said that the status quo is unsustainable and that the budget is the first step in having an optimistic vision of the future. In past years, she says, our proposals had little chance of becoming a reality because we faced a Democratic White House. But now with a Republican Congress and a Republican administration, now is the time to put forth a governing document with real solutions to address our biggest challenges. It will lay out a path to balance, promote job creation, give our military the resources they need to protect our nation and hold Washington accountable, she said. This budget also sets out reconciliation instructions to fix our broken tax code and make long overdue reforms to mandatory spending. Now, again, these are uh, the proposals. We don't know the details as of yet. They can do all that. I'm all for it. We'll see what's actually in the details that will tell us whether or not that's uh, that's possible. You'll remember after the uh, or during the previous administration, the president said he was going to go through every single uh, agency of the federal government to determine what needed to change to eliminate waste and fraud and all of that. Uh, And we've heard it in previous administrations. We'll see what happens this time around. Uh, one of the things that this uh, budget does is it uh, paves the way for t- for um, uh, additional inter-party uh, battling. And there's, there seems to be a lack of clarity uh, with regard to the health care reform. One wonders if there's greater clarity with regard to tax reform and the House budget. Well, after months of delays, the House uh, budget that was released uh, today or the, just um, yesterday, I believe, uh, falls short in some areas. It uh, busts the Budget Control Act caps. It fails to address Social Security reforms. The increase to uh, increases rather the allowable amount of change in mandatory program savings and 
often used budget gimmick, but the proposal does do this. These are nine takeaways from what the House has proposed. First, it balances the budget. It would uh, reach a surplus of $9 billion by 2027. Over 10 years, it would reduce total federal spending by $6.8 trillion compared to the Congressional Budget Office's latest projection. Number two, it proposes mandatory reforms through reconciliation. Now, the House budget instructs 11 authorizing committees to identify $203 billion in savings that would be implemented through the reconciliation process. It would also instruct the House Ways and Means Committee to pursue legislative legislation rewriting the nation's tax code. Uh, number three, it would prioritize defense. The budget, uh, the House budget introduced uh, would eliminate the defense non-defense firewall created by the Budget Control Act and provide about $621.5 billion in base defense funding, about $73 billion above current law and higher than the president's request. Um, now, by definition, by the way, that would uh, be considered pork by the Citizens Against Government Waste. We'll talk more about that later in the program. Number four, it repeals Obamacare and its taxes. It assumes that the American Health Care Act passes uh, passed by the House in May will be enacted, repealing and replacing Obamacare. And unlike past budgets introduced by the committee, this proposal also assumes that the taxes associated with Obamacare will be repealed. That's yet to be uh, the case. Number five, it begins to address veterans reforms. The Department of Veterans Affairs has been plagued by mismanagement issues, and uh, that has prevented vulnerable veterans from getting the care they deserve and desperately need. For the first time, the House budget proposes making modest reforms to the VA, The budget calls for the VA to implement government accountability office recommendations to ensure that its resources are being used efficiently and effectively to improve the lives of veterans. Number six, it relies on $1.5 trillion in macroeconomic growth effects. The past several congressional budget resolutions have relied on the CBO to determine the economic growth assumed in the budget. This year, the committee has instead developed its own assumptions, which are accelerated compared to those assumed by the CBO which I think it's fair to say uh, does have a pretty bad track record uh, in terms of being uh, accurate. Number seven, it breaks the Budget Control Act caps. Uh, Those caps were implemented as a way to control federal spending and reduce deficits. Congress passed bad budget deals and used gimmicks to continually circumvent the caps. This budget would spend an additional $183 billion on discretionary programs through 2021, the year in which the Budget Control Act expires. Number eight, it increases changes in mandatory program uh, spending in 2018, or CHIMP. The fiscal year uh, 2017 House Budget Committee passed budget uh, proposal placed a cap on those programs uh, for 2017 through 2019. Uh, and this uh, this plan would uh, would do that. It would increase the changes in the mandatory program. And number nine, it reforms Medicare, but does nothing to address Social Security. Now, Medicare and Social Security are the two largest drivers of federal debt. Now, this uh, budget would make much needed reforms to Medicare and makes the program financially sustainable and preserves it for the future uh, and for retirees of the future. But unfortunately, it fails to make the necessary reforms to Social Security. Delaying reforms comes at a pretty high cost. We talked about that, if not earlier this week, uh, last week, um, uh, at a a pretty high cost. Um, Congress should adopt a plan that carefully prioritizes among the federal programs, reduces the reach of the federal government into areas that belong properly within the purview of the private sector or the states or some other entity like local um, local government. But these are some of the takeaways of the budget that was proposed uh, by the um, uh, by the House Budget Committee. And of course, that will um, will be the document from which everything will begin.
assuming that a health care plan is passed at some point in the foreseeable future. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk with Gina Delfonso. She's the author of One by One, Welcoming the Singles in Your Church. So how welcome are unmarried people in your church, whether that's uh, single by choice, single by divorce, single uh, because they've been widowed? Uh, Is this a community in which uh, individuals are welcomed if they're not uh, linked to a a family, a husband, children, and so on? We'll talk with uh, Gina Delfonso about her book in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. Did you know there are now more single adults than married adults in the United States? Yet the evangelical church often focuses primarily on serving couples and families with ministries geared toward their particular needs. Nothing wrong with that, but that's not everybody. Well, this can lead to uh, unintentional consequences, marginalizing adults who are single by choice, divorce or death, who are simply not yet married. Singles long to be lovingly integrated into the body of Christ. And isn't that where they belong? Integrated into the body as part of our community. In One by One, Welcoming the Singles in Your Church, my next guest, Gina Delfonso, she explores common misconceptions and stereotypes about single individuals, including the idea that they must be single because, well, there must be something wrong with them and the subtle and not so subtle ways they're devalued. She shows that uh, serving singles well is not difficult and it benefits everyone. Uh, She gives church leaders and lay members rare glimpses into the challenges many single adults face and explores what the church is doing right, what unique services singles can offer the church, and most importantly, what the church can do to love and support its single members. Gina Delfonso is uh, the editor of Breakpoint.org, the website of the uh, Colson Center, as well as an occasional writer for Breakpoint Radio. She's also editor of Dickens Blog and a columnist at Christ and Pop Culture. Her writing has been published in The Atlantic, Christianity Today, First Things, National Review, The Weekly Standard, and many other. Um, uh, she joins us today to talk about her book, simply titled One by One, Welcoming the Singles, in your church. Gina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It seems peculiar that we would have to have this kind of conversation because it seems like it ought to be intuitive in the body of Christ that regardless of our familial uh, makeup, that we, we are part of the same community. But, that, but we've had challenges from the very beginning. Where did that begin and why do we find it difficult to incorporate single members of the body of Christ? Well, I've mainly focused on the past several years uh, as far as the intense family focus that we've had in the church. Um, And there were sometimes very good and valid reasons that that came about. I mean, the the church is interested in seeing people uh, in healthy marriages, raising their children well, you know, living their family life to glorify God. But any good thing can become an idol, and sometimes, in, particularly in recent years, churches have started moving more and more of the focus onto you need to be married, you need to have children. Uh, e- even sometimes the best way to honor God is to get married and have children. Uh, there, there are actually people who are teaching that now, and but that's not biblical. I mean... It may sound good on the surface, especially if you're really into marriage and family kind of ministries, but it's not biblical. Uh, our 
our primary focus is supposed to be God, not marriage and family. So uh, when we have shifted our focus like that and run the risk of making that an idol, then bad things are going to result from that. They always do from idolatry. And one of those things is that a lot of single people and or childless people feel increasingly that there's no place for them in the church. Mm. The first section of your book focuses on stigmas, stereotypes, and uh, shame, uh, beginning with the, the notion that singles are a problem. Let's talk about some of the things that we misunderstand about the individuals in the church who are just that, individuals uh, unmarried or perhaps divorced or widowed. Well, we have sort of given ourselves over to a formula, the formulaic ways of talking about faith and marriage. So we're often taught uh, either overtly or more subtly, uh, if you do everything right, God will bring you a spouse. If you live the right way, if you don't have premarital sex, if you follow all these steps, uh, you will get the desired result. But God is not a formulaic God. We've forgotten that. God doesn't work that way. And uh, it, it just doesn't always happen. So, but, but the problem is, that when we teach these things and people absorb these things, then they start to think, well, that single person, it didn't work out for him or her. Uh, that person must have done something wrong. They, they didn't uh, jump through all the right hoops. They didn't live right. Uh, you know, God would have let them get married if they had. And, and so we, we, uh, we get all these wrong ideas about the single people in our churches, and then it affects how we treat them. How common is what you just described? I think it's pretty common. I I um I did a number of interviews in the course of writing this book with uh fellow single people, with friends, with relatives, with friends of friends. I sent out questionnaires, I asked them about their experiences, and I heard a lot of this sort of thing. People feeling left out, pushed aside, made to feel that there was something wrong with them when the only difference between them and the person sitting next to them is marital status. So that there's definitely, you definitely hear a lot of this. I also read a lot of articles and books and, and used some of the quotes from there in the book as well, just to show how prevalent this is. So for, for unmarried uh, individuals um, who are believers, where do they where do they go? Are they staying in the church? Are they stepping away from the church, looking for alternative ways to uh, to fellowship with uh, with believers? What is a typical response among single adults who don't find the church that they would like to associate with a particularly welcoming place? Some of them are staying there and trying to stick it out and make it work. Uh, some are walking away. Uh, the The most recent study I saw from Barna said that about 23% of churchgoers are single now. That seems like a high number, and it is a high number compared to the past. Still, it's not as high as the rate of singleness outside the church. So, uh, as one other person who interviewed me said, if that's the case, then then, um, what accounts for the discrepancy? Why can't the church get more single people in the doors? But the problem is we're not making it a priority. Instead, a lot of churches are talking about rising rates of singleness as something that's alarming and something to be scared of. And when that happens, of course, you're not going to draw more singles in because they don't want to be the people that that freak you out. Yeah. You interviewed a lot of single Christians uh, while writing one by one. What are some of the common themes that came up in those conversations? Just things like 
feeling there was no place for them, feeling like uh, they they didn't belong. A lot of them talked about having feeling like they were at the kids' table when all the married people were at the grown-ups' table, mm. or you know, not not being allowed to join mixed small groups even when they wanted to, or not being encouraged to do that. I, I, sometimes there's a place for singles groups. Uh, a lot of it depends on the church and its demographics and its size and a lot of other factors. Sometimes there's a place for that. But sometimes, uh, a lot of times, I think, there's a place for encouraging the singles and the married people to mix as much as possible just in the day-to-day of the church, uh, to, to participate in the same activities, the same ministries, and so forth, so that everybody can be together and learn from each other and maybe not stereotype each other so much. Yeah, yeah. We may actually have something to offer one another. Mm-hmm. Imagine that, yeah. <laughs> the body of Christ fitting together. <laughs> now, yeah. you give an overview of what Christian culture has been saying about relationships. We've talked a bit about that and, uh, and singleness. Um, where do these messages come from? Are they essentially cultural? Are they theological? Where have, uh, the, are they Western? Where do these messages come from? Well, in a lot of cases, uh, Christian culture has tried to go above and beyond what the Bible teaches for relationships. We have taken, I mean, some of, some of God's standards in the Word are obviously timeless, uh, the way He, the way He, uh, tells us to live and, um, when we're single and when we're married. Uh, but other things, sometimes we take cultural things and we say this too is a timeless standard and everybody everywhere has to do it when sometimes they're just cultural. Mm-hmm. And I, I talked I talk some, some about uh, courtship culture and how out of, you know, the best intentions in the world, uh, some of these messages ended up messing people up because they they sort of paralyzed people with fear and indecision and lots of rules and regulations that were not biblical, but that were outside the Bible. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Gina Delfonso. Her book is titled One by One, Welcoming the Singles in Your Church. It's something to think very seriously about. How welcome are unmarried people in your congregation? We'll continue our conversation momentarily, but first, a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Talking with Gina uh, D'Alfonso. She's the author of One by One, Welcoming the Seniors, uh, rather the Singles in Your Church. In the first uh, sections of her book, she talks about uh, stigmas, stereotypes, and shame, how we got to where we are today. But the third section focuses on where do we go from here? Uh, one of the things that you've already touched on a little bit is rethinking our values, that returning to a biblical view of how we are to fellowship together rather than allowing other influences to uh, shape our fellowship together. You also write about what the church gets right. What what does the church do well as it stands now as we seek to improve in incorporating um, the single members among us? Well, I'm happy to say the church is doing some things right, and I'm really grateful and glad to say that. Uh, that one thing is, and, and this is a very important thing, it's a place where the high standards that we try to live by, the way we try to live our lives, that's a place where we can find a refuge, if you will, people that understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. We're, we're really single people, single Christians who are really seriously trying to practice their faith in this world. We are really living counterculturally in a lot of ways where we are, 
you know, it doesn't make any sense to the world, for instance, that we are living celibate lives. And in the church, uh, I, I do say in the book that the church could be more supportive of us in, in some ways uh, with that, but in the church, we do find people who understand why we're living counterculturally, mm-hmm. who, who teach us about living counterculturally, culturally, sorry, and how important it is, and sort of reinforce that conviction that we have. So that is valuable, and that's not something you just find anywhere. And um, we just, the, the church is where we we find people who who um, understand certain things about our lives that the rest of the world just isn't going to get. Yeah, yeah. You also write about the benefits that the body of Christ derives from embracing its single members and the, the reverse, the, the benefit that the, the um, singles uh, derive from being embraced and, and being a part of the body of Christ. How do we benefit one another? And it's, it seems like a foolish question because it should seem obvious, but I think given the fact that we have challenges in this area, it might uh, bear commenting on. Right. It, it, it's a good question. And uh, we, we have used the metaphor of, of the body of Christ, the biblical metaphor. And it, when a body has uh, certain members that are neglected, it can't function just at the at the most basic level. Paul explains to us how a body has to pay attention to all its members, and all the members have to work together in order to function well. But using another metaphor, uh, the church is the family of God, and the church is where single people who don't have families of their own can go to find a family that is even closer in some ways because it is a family built by God. It, it is um, our relationships with Christ that uh, draw us together, that our, our ability to recognize the image of God in each other. And so uh, that benefits single people enormously, and it, it benefits married people, too, because... Uh, it reminds them that their earthly family, their biological family, I, I should say, is not all there is. It encourages mm-hmm. them to look outside themselves and to remember, I'm not just part of my family, I'm part of God's family. Okay, what does that mean? How do I interact with other Christians to learn to be part of God's family? So we are, we are, we single people are people who can help remind them of that and, and help them learn that. What are some of the practical steps that you write about that married people can take to become more welcoming to single people? Uh, there are a couple different levels uh, that this works on. I, the church as a whole can look into incorporating single people more into ministries, into leadership positions, onto committees, and uh, making sure that their voices are heard from and that they have that single people and married people are treated equally when it comes to um, how the church uh, runs and, and is put together. But on an individual level, I, I ask people to marry people in the church just to start seeing the single people, not overlooking them. If you have a habit of hanging out with other married couples and all the kids play together and so forth, or everybody going out to lunch after church, you'd be surprised uh, the way that some singles told me they just completely get overlooked in that. Mm-hmm. And so start just start looking and seeing them and thinking, oh, all of us married people are going out, let's invite these single people, too. That Mix it up a little bit. And, and don't just assume that the single people want to be herded off somewhere and do everything by themselves, mm-hmm. because a lot of times they don't. They want to be part of things. So, so just be aware and try to see how you can reach out. 
Are you optimistic that this is a message that's resonating with the body of Christ and um, that there's hope moving forward that we're going to be more of a community that embraces all its members? Yes, I, I think there is hope. I've had a good response to the book so far. A lot of people have told me that uh, it made them think about some things that they hadn't thought about before. Uh, one of my favorite reviews, uh, the reviewer said that she just realized she never invited single people over to dinner and she was going to start changing that. So, I mean, that was wonderful because that was so practical and mm-hmm. immediate as somebody taking a genuine step to, um, to, to start making a change. And that's where change starts with every one of us. So, yes, I, I'm very hopeful. Well, once again, the book is uh, is titled One by One, Welcoming the Singles in Your Church. It's a very practical book. It, I think, exposes some of the areas that we may not even be aware of that we've overlooked in embracing all members of uh, our congregations and offers uh, some insight into what we can do to improve that from both the standpoint of a single person and the body of Christ in general. Gina, thank you so much for the book and for taking time to talk with us today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. By the way, the book is uh, published by Baker and, of course, is available wherever books are available. One by one, welcoming the singles in your church. In just a moment, we're going to take a break for news and traffic here at the top of the hour. When we come back, we're going to talk with Jason Sneed. He's a policy analyst in the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. The president's advisory commission on election integrity is going to meet, or rather did meet earlier today, I think 11 o'clock Eastern time. It's the first time, and they're taking a a look at... uh, uh, election integrity. We'll talk more about what this commission is uh, commissioned to do. Also, we're going to talk with Thomas Schatz. He's president of Citizens Against Government Waste uh, and its lobbying affiliate, the Council for Citizens Against Government Waste. Today, they released their 2017 Congressional Pig Book. If you're not familiar with it, it's an expose on pork barrel spending in Washington, those airmarks that somehow make their way into into the budget. And it gives you a a figure as to how much some of these projects um, costs the the taxpayers, and so we're going to talk with him about this latest uh, edition of the uh, of the Congressional Pig Book for 2017. It's interesting because it it puts into perspective the fact that there was an airmark moratorium passed by Congress, I believe, some five years ago, and since that moratorium has been put into place, the number and the cost of earmarks has only escalated, and this year the highest uh, to date. So to refer to an airmark. Um, moratorium doesn't necessarily mean that kind of spending does hasn't continued. So we'll talk with Mr. Schatz about that. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we're going to talk with Jason Sneed. He's a policy analyst in the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about the Presidential Advisory Commission on Election Integrity. They're meeting for the first time today, I think around 11 o'clock this morning. They began their first meeting. The vice president is heading up this effort. We're going to talk about what their uh, what their plan is and whether or not this is just another expression, as uh, critics would suggest of voter suppression. That's uh, coming up later this hour. We're also going to talk with Thomas Schatz. He is president of Citizens Against Government Waste and its lobbying affiliate, the Council for Citizens Against Government Waste. They have just uh, released their, in fact, today, released their 2017 Congressional Pig Book. It's the 25th edition. It's an expose on pork barrel spending in Washington. And this, despite the fact that there is an airmark moratorium 
Now, it's a matter of semantics, I guess. The language and the, uh, the definition of what constitutes an airmark differs in this report from what some members of Congress would suggest, even though this was uh, some of the spending that's highlighted in the book uh, was highlighted as airmark spending before the moratorium. It's just repackaged, renamed, and by any other name is still taxpayer dollars being spent. So anyway, we're going to talk with him about that. Well, the Supreme Court's latest ruling on the president's travel ban was both a setback and a partial victory for the White House. And isn't that sort of the way things have gone from the very beginning? We're about the six-month mark in this new administration. So the Supreme Court's decision was both a setback and a partial victory. Uh, The court dealt the president uh, a fresh setback by saying its controversial travel ban cannot be applied to grandparents and other close relatives of people living in the United States for now. Now, the White House had attempted to define uh, close relatives as immediate family, mom, pop, brother, sister, son, daughter. That was it. No cousins, no grandparents and so on. So for now, it's broadened to include grandparents. And that was the initial complaint. Well, what about grandparents and other close relatives? I don't know, fourth cousin, fifth cousin, once removed, you know, who knows? Well, the court accepted a Hawaii district judge ruling. Uh, last week that the Trump administration had too narrowly defined what constitutes close family relationships to determine exceptions to the ban on travelers from six mainly Muslim countries. Now, we keep saying six mainly Muslim countries. There are 40 plus mainly Muslim countries that are not named, but it makes the point. It fits the narrative by by including that they are Iran, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria and Yemen, by the way. Uh, That left in place the judge's wider definition that included grandparents, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, cousins of people living in the United States. Uh, In uh, its brief order, the court backed the Trump administration by saying the part of the Hawaii judge ruling that would have expanded exceptions to its 120 day ban on all refugees. So we're talking about a ban that's what, uh, 120 days. It's it'll be uh, here and gone before. All of the the questions and the the bickering back and forth has ended. But the order said the Supreme Court's ruling is temporarily pending a federal appeals court pending review of the issue. And again, the uh, clock is ticking. Who knows if decisions will be made before the thing expires as it is temporary. Meanwhile, billions of dollars in student loans may be wiped out for tens of thousands of borrowers here in the U.S. because a lender didn't keep track of the paperwork verifying ownership of the loans. That's being reported by the New York Times. The National Collegiate Student Loan Trust, which holds 800,000 private loans and is one of the country's largest owners of private student loans, is at the center of this legal dispute. Uh, Borrowers are failing to repay more than $5 billion of the $12 billion in private student loans held by the National Collegiate sending the loans into default. Well, the organization has brought more than 800 lawsuits against borrowers this year alone in pursuit of repayment. The National Collegiate usually wins because borrowers either choose to settle or don't show up in court, according to the Times. Well, when borrowers do show up uh, to fight, the cases are uh, not so straightforward. Disorganized or missing paperwork has made it difficult for National Collegiate to prove it does indeed own the defaulted loan it's demanding repayment on. To be clear, the Times reports the organization's legal problems don't include falsifying documents. Well, the student loans held by National Collegiate were made more than a decade ago by dozens of different banks, then bundled together by a financial company and sold to investors through a process known as uh, securitization. 
And they weren't guaranteed by the federal government. Well, Donald Uderitz, the founder of Vantage Capital Group, which is a private equity firm in Delray Beach, Florida, is one of the financiers um, behind National Collegiate Trusts. And even he appears to be confused by the missing paperwork. In 2015, he hired a contractor to audit the servicing company that bills National Collegiate borrowers every month and found that not one of 400 randomly sampled loans had the documents showing a chain of ownership. Well, it's fraud to try to collect on loans that you don't own. He points out, we want no part of that. If it's a loan, we're owed fairly. We want to collect. We need answers on this. Well, private student loans lack the consumer protection and manageable interest rates that come with federal student loans. Now, a $1.3 trillion market. And because of steep interest rates on private loans, borrowers can often end up paying hundreds and in some cases, thousands of dollars in monthly payments. Well, notably, federal student loan borrowers have the ability to apply for loan forgiveness or a loan discharge, such as in the case of an incomplete degree from a defunct for-profit college, while private borrowers do not. So many, many students may uh, simply not have to repay the loans. Uh, they promise they would, but not because uh, because of what they've done, but apparently what the lenders failed to do. And finally, after initially doing so in April, the Trump administration this week made another determination, albeit a last second one, affirming that Iran is uh, conforming to Barack Obama's 2015 nuclear deal. The administration is legally mandated to provide Congress (coughs) an update on the joint comprehensive plan of action every 90 days. And suffice it to say, recertification is a risky calculation Though, to be fair, Donald Trump's patience is reportedly waning. Well, according to The New York Times, the recertification occurred only after hours of arguing with his top national security advisors. And aides said a frustrated Mr. Trump had told his security team that he would not keep doing so indefinitely. After all, on the campaign trail, he often and rightly called it the worst deal ever. Well, this report is echoed in The Washington Post, which states senior administration officials made clear that the certification was grudging and said that President Trump intends to impose new sanctions on Iran for ongoing malign activities in non-nuclear areas such as ballistic missile development and supportive support rather for terrorism, end quote. Well, Iran was handed down additional sanctions in April as well. And the Washington Free Beacon reports the new embargo includes 16 Iranian entities and individuals found to be supportive Tehran's illicit and criminal activities in the region. The administration is finalizing a comprehensive review of the Iran deal. According to the Beacon, the review is set to be completed in about a month's time, according to the administration. Regardless of whether, um, uh, regardless of whether the Trump administration is merely buying time, former Ambassador John Bolton, writing in The Hill, argues that in addition to evidence of clear and deliberate deal-breaking, validating compliance is a meaningless guise. He says certification is an uh, unforced error because the applicable status or statute, the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act of 2015, requires neither certifying Iran's compliance nor certifying Iranian noncompliance. Paula de Sutter and, uh, and I, he went on to say, and I'm, again, I'm quoting uh, John Bolton, uh, previously explained that the INARA, that's the agreement, requires merely that the Secretary of State, to whom President Obama delegated the task, determine whether he is able to or she to certify compliance. 
Uh, the secretary can satisfy the statute simply by determining that he is not prepared for now to certify compliance and that U.S. policy is under review. Well, the bottom line is, Bolton contends, is that there is no reason for the United States not to trash the deal. In fact, withdrawing from the uh, the deal as soon as possible should be the highest priority. Well, the administration should stop reviewing and start deciding, critics say, even assuming, contrary to fact, that Iran is complying with the deal. It remains palpably harmful to American national interests. It should not have taken six months to reach this conclusion. His um, uh, exit question is one worth pondering. This U.S. approach is both dangerous and unnecessary. Uh, care to uh, debate how close Tehran and North Korea now are to nuclear weapons? Well, consider the costs of betting wrong. Trump should fulfill his campaign pledge before it's too late. But that affirmation came just yesterday, the last day in this latest round that requires an affirmation, that 90-day period that requires a, a, a recertification. All right, we're going to take a break here in a, a moment. We're going to talk with Jason Sneed. He is a policy analyst in the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at Heritage. We'll talk about the president's advisory commission on election integrity headed by the vice president. They're meeting for the first time today. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Presidential Advisory Commission on Election Integrity met today for the first time. And while some Americans believe voter fraud is essentially a non-issue and voting irregularities seldom occur, there's hard evidence from the Heritage Foundation's voter fraud database that proves this is wishful thinking. Well, this recently updated database now has a total of 1,071 instances of voter fraud cataloged from across the country, 47 states, in fact, uh, and legal expert Jason Sneed joins us to uh, offer some uh, details on some of the cases in the database, uh, database rather, in a recent op-ed. Uh, this is an issue about to get the attention that uh, many now suggest it deserves. And Jason, who's a policy analyst in the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation, joins us to talk about why. Hey, thanks so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. First, let's talk about this uh, presidential commission and what they are charged with doing. Sure. The uh, the president's advisory commission on election integrity is charged with uh, investigating vulnerabilities to America's electoral system. They are uh, going to be looking at voter registration records. They're going to be looking at practices and policies uh, throughout uh, all 50 states in order to determine uh, how secure our elections are against fraud and whether there are any systemic problems or challenges to the voter registration or the actual election process itself. Now, they're not looking into, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, efforts by foreign uh, sources to try to influence U.S. elections, but looking at the system itself and whether or not within the United States there are vulnerabilities that are being exploited. Is that correct? Uh, I believe that that's correct. I'm not 100% sure about what the uh, exact outer boundaries of the commission's responsibility um, or, or mission will be. They are looking at all uh, types of, uh, of potential challenges to the integrity of the election, including cybersecurity-related uh, uh, measures. But, uh, you know, we have quite a lot. Uh, the commission has quite a lot to look at, and we at, at Heritage have certainly uh, been doing our fair share of looking ourselves. Now, the vice president is chairing that, uh, that effort. Uh, and tell us a little bit about what the Heritage Foundation has found and what impact those findings have had on previous elections and certainly on the work of this commission? Well, the uh, Heritage Foundation has been, for the last couple of years, compiling instances of proven, confirmed uh, electoral fraud in the United States. And we have compiled our findings in 
the Heritage Voter Fraud Database, which is available online at uh, heritage.org slash voter fraud. And what we have tracked are, uh, as you said in the, the introduction, well more than 1,000 proven instances of voter fraud. And when I say proven, I mean that they have resulted either in a criminal conviction for someone who is, is responsible for the act of uh, voter fraud or has resulted in some sort of official government finding or the imposition of a civil penalty by an election board. And we have all manner of cases that have uh, have have occurred in 47 states uh, related to our elections, everything from absentee ballot fraud to, to non-citizen voting to people voting in more than one uh, in more than one precinct or more than one state. And when you look at the breadth of the information that we have here, I think it becomes very difficult to say with a straight face that election fraud simply doesn't occur or that it doesn't have any impact because we have documented evidence of elections that have been overturned because there was fraud uh, that was sufficient to, to, to swing the results. Now, in the Heritage Database, as you've pointed out, there are some uh, 1,071 documented cases. Critics of, of this effort have argued that those are isolated. It has not... It's not widespread and therefore is not having an impact uh, on elections across the country and doesn't deserve the kind of attention that they refer to as voter suppression. What do you say about the number that you have documented as opposed to the number of ballots and elections that take place across the country? Uh, Does this validate uh, the need for a commission and does it suggest that there's broader uh, need to address um, potential voter fraud uh, in other places and in other ways? Well, I, I, I certainly think that, uh, um, you know, what we have found at the Heritage Foundation justifies the, the sort of attention which the commission is giving to this issue. Um, you know, we, we, we found well more than 1,000 instances of voter fraud, but that is not at all the, the, the true scope. It's not intended to represent the true scope of voter fraud in the United States. It's the tip of the iceberg. It's the cases that we have been able to find through our own research, but of course we don't have the uh, we, we don't have the resources of the federal government in terms of investigating this. And uh, I would also say that that given the fact that a great many states don't have adequate provisions in in place in their laws and their own election systems to detect fraud, that there probably is quite a bit of it going on that we simply don't know about because we can't detect it. Uh, you know, as I said, when we're when we're looking at cases that are contained in this database, we have elections that have been overturned. We have conspiracies which are being um, which are being orchestrated by people who have won elective office, trying to stay in office despite what the will of the people uh, evidently uh, says. And so, I do think that uh, we have a serious problem here that needs to be, at the very least, studied to determine exactly how serious it is, what the scope of the problem is, and to propose reasonable solutions. At the heart of this uh, debate that's been highly politicized are what I would consider common sense measures like voter identification laws and efforts to clean up outdated voter rolls and so on. Uh, critics of this commission and certainly any effort to suggest that voter fraud does occur and will continue to occur unless it's uh, addressed. Uh, the report that the Heritage um, uh, put out suggests that in uh, deniers are actually making it much easier for fraudsters to steal votes and for corrupt politicians to rig elections and negate uh, legitimate votes cast by eligible citizens, effectively disenfranchising them. So the very thing they say they're attempting to uh, avoid, to prevent, uh, is the thing that their opposition to this kind of uh, research into what's happening uh, produces. I think that's absolutely right. You know, we we know that this problem exists. We have the evidence in our voter fraud database, and 
the commission is now prepared to take a, a much more substantive and much more, and much deeper dive into the data. They are going to, uh, to to see where the facts lead, and they're going to propose solutions to the problem. But there are, unfortunately, a number of people who have rolled out what I, what I find to be absolutely hyperbolic rhetoric associated with this commission and with the issue of election integrity. And when they prefer to uh, bury their heads in the sand, and they, they prefer essentially to bury all of our heads in the sand, they are leaving exposed uh, known vulnerabilities to the election system. Uh, Pew's study uh, concluded in 2012 that one in every eight voter registrations was inaccurate or out of date, that there were, were nearly two million deceased individuals still on the voter rolls in the United States, and that millions more were registered in multiple states. Those kind of systemic inaccuracies at least make it easier for fraud to, to take place and for a fraudster to, uh, to, to game the system. And, uh, you know, I think that it, we, we don't tackle this challenge at our own peril. Now, the Presidential Advisory Commission on Election Integrity, what is, the, what is their charter? What are they charged with doing? And what uh, initiatives do you anticipate will uh, come out of their findings? Well, they're charged with taking a look uh, at, uh, you know, all of the, the practices of, of the, the, the various states in the uh, exercise of state and federal elections. They are actively requesting uh, publicly available information um, on state voter registration records so that they can try to do a deeper dive. And I'm sure that they're going to be looking at uh, other types of information uh, in the future. And what I expect to see from them in, term of, in terms of a finished product is a uh, report which will be uh, handed uh, into the president at the conclusion of the commission. And it will detail uh, not only the findings of the, the commission into uh, any vulnerabilities or threats or challenges to America electoral system, but also uh, solutions which uh, will have been proposed and agreed to by the commission to uh, address those, uh, those those vulnerabilities such, uh, such as they're found. And so I'm, I'm expecting that, you know, sometime next year, I believe, is when we're going to see a final, uh, a final result. I'm expecting to see a report that will probably be a very comprehensive, if not the most comprehensive, look at uh, the electoral system in, in, in recent years. I know that some states have already uh, started pushing back on requests for information that would help provide them uh, the snapshot they need into our electoral system. Uh, any thoughts on, on that pushback and an unwillingness in some cases in some states to provide the information that the commission is requesting? Sure. So the, the, the commission is, is casting a bit of a wide net, but they caveated their request by saying that they are only looking for publicly available voter uh, information. And it's important to, to, to really note that this is publicly available data. This is information which is available not only under federal law, but also under state laws. And in fact, the, the, the type of data that is being requested by the commission is routinely purchased by political parties and political candidates and, and even by, uh, by private companies for use in, in elections as well. So this isn't some sort of invasion of privacy as has been suggested. Um, really what the, what the commission is trying to do in terms of, of gain access to these records is to be able to present a comprehensive picture. And unfortunately, some of the, some of the rhetoric and some of the opposition from states, it really beggars the question, you know, if they're so absolutely convinced that their roles are accurate 100% and that there is no fraud in their states, why are they so unwilling to release this information? I would think that they would jump at the chance to to absolutely say that they are 100 percent right and that voter fraud is, in fact, a myth. Well, we'll certainly continue to follow the work of the commission. I appreciate your taking time to help explain it to us and help us better understand what to anticipate. Jason Sneed, thank you so much. Thank you.
Again, Jason is a policy analyst in the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Up next, we're going to talk with Thomas Schatz. He's president of Citizens Against Government Waste and its lobbying affiliate, the Council for Citizens Against Government Waste. Today, they released their 2017 Congressional Pig Book. It's the 25th edition, an expo day, uh, expose rather on pork barrel spending. That's next on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Congressional Pig Book, uh, the annual compilation of the pork barrel projects in the federal budget, is out. Uh, and the Citizens Against Government Waste and its lobbying affiliate, the Council for Citizens Against Government Waste, have produced the 2017 Congressional Pig Book um, And we're going to talk about that here with uh, Thomas Schatz, who is the president of Citizens Against Government Waste and its lobbying affiliate, the Council for Citizens Against Government Waste. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, glad to be on. Thanks. Well, the sad thing is you have uh, another, your 25th edition of the Congressional um, Pig Book, uh, and that there's enough in there to to merit a book. So sadly, that's the case, but I am grateful that you all provide this information so that we can gain a better understanding of uh, where our tax paying, our tax dollars are going. Oh, uh, yes, uh, we do monitor the appropriations bills, analyze them, come up with the projects that meet our seven-point criteria, which we have been doing since the first pig book in 1991, and unfortunately it's bigger than last year. Well, which is puzzling because Congress enacted an airmark moratorium that began in fiscal year 2011, and one might have thought, well, that's the end of that, no more congressional pig book. However, <laughs> there's no lack of uh, items to put in it. What happened? Citizens Against Government Waste has a definition that is different than Congress's definition. That's always been the case. But in this pig book and the others since the moratorium, we are identifying projects that have appeared in prior pig books. So they may be changing the language or changing the description or how the money is being portrayed, but it certainly matches what they had been doing previously in in several cases. You make the point that um, there's an increase of 32.5% from the uh, fiscal year 2016 book, which is pretty staggering, and that the cost uh, of the earmarks in um, the fiscal year 2017 is $6.8 billion, an increase of 33.3% from 2016. Again, that's, I suppose, not surprising, disappointing, and staggering. That's very disappointing. Uh, That figure is also double what it was in 2012, which was the first year after the moratorium. 77% of those projects were in the Defense Appropriations Bill, which has always been more than half of the earmarks. Uh, The Department of Defense doesn't ask for a lot of this money, and of course that means the national security priorities that the uh, Pentagon would like to spend money on are being pushed aside by these earmarks. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you all define um, pork barrel spending in a particular way. It differs uh, to some degree from what members of Congress would uh, would define it. But tell us uh, just generally how you would define uh, pork that is part of this pig book. The seven-point criteria was developed in 2001 in conjunction with the Congressional Pork Busters Coalition. Uh, so they include uh, whether or not the project or program was authorized, whether the money was competitively awarded, whether there were hearings, uh, whether the prog- program was only requested by the House or the Senate, not both. And then it also addresses the 
issue of whether the president requests the project in his budget or whether it greatly exceeds the president's budget request. Give us some examples of some of the pork in the congressional pig book this year. Well, one of the projects that exceeded the president's budget request, in this case by 55%, is the East-West Center in Hawaii. And in this case, we have a name attached to the project, which is pretty rare these days because there are no more transparency rules requiring members to list their names next to the earmarks, where it's going, how much it costs, because they say there aren't any. But this was Senator Brian Schatz, no relation, $5.9 million for the East-West Center in Hawaii, uh, intended to promote better relations with Pacific and Asian nations, which I think is the purpose of the State Department. Uh, it's been around since 1960, and this is uh, something that's been going on, Senator Inouye, before Senator Schatz got this money. Uh, there used to be something called the North South Center, but that stopped getting federal money in 2001. The East-West Center should be doing the same. So how do members of Congress respond to this expose, informing taxpayers of how their dollars are being spent, or rather misspent? Well, there's always an excuse that uh, this is money that's you know certainly a high priority. I think Senator Schatz issued a statement today that this is you know vital to national security. Uh, it, you know they use all kinds of excuses. It's funny that he mentioned national security. Yet yeah, it's in the state and foreign operations uh, bill, not the defense bill. <laughs> so, uh, and, and that's what they do. Uh, another thing that's going on is the House of Representatives has not agreed to extend or renew the earmark moratorium. The Senate Republicans did that unanimously in January. The House Republicans have not, because they want to start looking at exceptions to the definition of an earmark, like the Army Corps of Engineers or. Bureau of Reclamation claiming these water projects are vital, but there's a limit as to how much money can be spent. And if they don't like the way it's being distributed, they should change the formula, not pick and choose who gets the money, because the appropriators get by far a disproportionate amount. This, um, as I mentioned, this uh, congressional pig book has come out for 25 years in which you've provided information for taxpayers. And right around this time of year, my blood pressure goes up and I'm outraged by much of what I read in that book. Uh, what what do you hope readers will do, and how do you uh, hope members of Congress might respond to the collective outrage of people who are funding these projects? At uh, the, uh, the press conference this morning, we had Senator Jeff Flake and Senator Joni Ernst. Uh, we, we very much miss Senator John McCain, who's been a champion of fighting the earmarks ever since he came to Congress. Uh, but Senators uh, Flake and Ernst have sponsored legislation to permanently ban earmarks, uh, they were instrumental in promoting the extension of the earmark moratorium. And then the four House members, Mark Walker of North Carolina, who's the chairman of the Republican Study Committee, and then Bill Flores of Texas, the former chairman of the RSC, Jim Banks, a freshman from Indiana, and Ron DeSantis from Florida. All four of them signed a no earmarks pledge. So we are going to start uh, pushing this no earmarks pledge in the House so we can hopefully counteract the effort by members uh, of the Appropriations Committee and some others, who I'll be happy to mention by name, who are trying to you know, mess up the moratorium and get earmarks back. Yeah. Uh, and I guess my question would be, how will this differ from the moratorium on earmarks that's already in place? Well, a ban would mean they don't have to keep renewing the moratorium every, every year. Mm-hmm. This goes through the rules of the House and the Senate. There's no permanent legislation that was passed that says they're maybe or may not be earmarks. It's just been something that they've done. And they established the rule. Again, the definition differs a little. Uh, but having a permanent ban, I think, would have a greater impact than leaving the door open for the potential to return to earmarks. 
And I think the election last year was a drain the swamp election, not a fill it up election. And that's what they're trying to do if they start restoring earmarks. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, my next question, I know our listeners are are already asking, how do they get a copy of the uh, Citizens Against Government Waste 2017 Congressional Pig Book Summary? And I would encourage them to check with their medical uh, doctor ahead of time just to make sure that they are uh, healthy enough to read through it. Well, it's a pretty easy website. It is pigbook.org. Leads right to the page with our congressional pig book and all the information that anybody needs. Well, uh, once again, I appreciate uh, you all making this compilation available to the average citizen to help put into perspective uh, what so many of us feel is a problem. And, and this gives us concrete examples of how the problem has persisted. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you very much. Appreciate it very much. Again, uh, Thomas Schatz is uh, president of Citizens Against Government Waste and its lobbying affiliate, the Council for Citizens Against Government Waste. And their uh, 2017 congressional pig book is currently available online. They also have a summary. If you don't want to go through the whole book, you can read the summary of it and, uh, you know, find out some of the, the highlights. But you you just be amazed at what uh, passes um, with these guys and a few gals uh, in uh, in Congress, um, and they are, in fact, um, airmarks, despite the fact that there's a moratorium against them that has to be renewed year after year after year. So I appreciate uh, that uh, that book. All right, coming up, we're going to wrap things up here on the program. I want to let you know a little bit about uh, some other federal spending that uh, might um, make you a little bit frustrated. So again, make sure the blood pressure is uh, make, be fully hydrated. Uh, be sitting down, make sure you're safe and all of that. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and uh, we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, speaking of ham, as we were with uh, Thomas Schatz, who's the president of Citizens Against Government Waste and the Council for Citizens Against Government Waste, I have a little bit of uh, pork to share with you. The National Institutes of Health is spending nearly $400,000 testing how to insert subliminal messages against cigarette smoking in video games played by teenagers. Your tax dollars at work. The University of Connecticut received a grant for the study earlier this year that suggests teenagers are easier targets for anti-cigarette messaging when they are lost in video games. And don't we want the government implanting messages into video games? Now, in this case, we might agree, well, cigarette smoking is a bad thing. So the government should be involved in in subliminally uh, trying to influence the thinking of young people. But what about other messages that they might also through this? Uh, this new technology, this new capacity, choose to uh, embed in entertainment uh, medium like video games. Uh, the article goes on to say, with surveys indicating that 97% of adolescents and 80% of young adults play video games for entertainment, use of entertainment video games as a tool for delivering graphic warnings has tremendous potential to influence young cigarette and e-cigarette rates, according to the grant for the study. However, before such an approach can be pursued, researchers need to better understand health communication dynamics in computer-mediated virtual gaming worlds, end quote. Researchers say their project is needed to test the viability of the virtual transportation model of health communication, the theory that kids can be propagandized more easily when they are gaming. And isn't that what we want? We want to propagandize kids while they're gaming. I mean, today it's stop smoking cigarettes. It might be tomorrow. Don't, uh, you know, don't read the Bible. Jettison your parents. They don't know what they're talking about. Anyway, federal government, uh, $400,000 to learn how to do that more effectively. And then there's this. The National Institutes of Health is spending over $200,000 um, 
in a video game about clean water. The computer game will help children right the environmental wrongs of a fictional town. A grant for the project was awarded last month to Meadowlark Science and Education, a company that makes STEM video games in Missoula, Montana. The target audience of the new environmental health video game is fifth and sixth graders who will use the game to sharpen their science, technology, engineering, and math skills while increasing their awareness of the importance of clean water. Improving STEM-focused curriculum is a primary objective of the current U.S. administration and is crucial for ensuring that upcoming generations receive the training and skills necessary to compete in the existing global economy. That's according to the grant for that project. To that end, there isn't an urgent need for additional effective teaching tools able to reach a generation that requires instant access to information and advanced technology. Now, this may not be a subliminal program, but it might be characterized as somewhat propagandizing. A particular interest to this proposal is the development of a highly effective, marketable, and interactive educational video game that focuses on STEM projects and targets fifth and sixth grade students the age at which interest in STEM subjects is developed or lost, the grant states. The goal of the study is to create a computer game with significant commercial potential that increases awareness of the importance of clean water in human health. So they're communicating a public policy message while kids think they're just having fun playing a video game. U.S. taxpayers, in another story, have paid some $90,000 for a theater performance. I'm so sorry I missed this. A theater performance in which people commune with a tall cactus for an hour in the middle of the Arizona desert to discover what it can teach them. I can tell from right here sitting in the studio what a cactus in the middle of the Arizona desert can teach me, and it wouldn't have required $90,000. I'm just saying. On a posher scale, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York netted $1.2 million in taxpayer-funded grants from the U.S. government since 2009, nearly half of it last year. These are just two perhaps unexpected findings in a new report from the Open the Books that reveals hundreds of millions of dollars in taxpayer money granted to thousands of nonprofits and other organizations by the National Foundation on the Arts and the Humanities. Boy, it sounds so good. You mentioned that cactus thing. The report says the government foundation distributed $441 million to 3,163 entities in fiscal year 2016, which ended September 30th. Of these, 71 are asset-rich nonprofits, the report says, meaning their assets exceed $1 billion. So why they need taxpayer money is a big open question. Even so, they received $20.5 million in grants. The National Foundation on the Arts and the Humanities, the subject of the report, is the umbrella organization for three agencies, the National Endowment of the Arts, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Institute of Museum and Library Services. I'm sure they all do great work, but staring at a cactus in the middle of a desert in Arizona, one wonders. Open the Book says its mission is to capture and post online all disclosed spending at every level of government. The goal, to show Americans where their taxes are going and let them decide if it adds up to government waste. Nearly half of the $441 million awarded by the National Foundation on the Arts and the Humanities, about $210 million, went to recipients in nine states in the District of Columbia. Most are blue states, California, Florida, Illinois, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, New York, Pennsylvania, and Texas. Ballets, operas, orchestras, symphonies received $5.4 million, despite having $5 billion in assets, the report says. Among them, the Boston Symphony, the Lyric Opera of Chicago, and the New York City Ballet. New York City's Metropolitan Museum of Art received $1.2 million in grants. 
from the government foundation between fiscal years uh, 2009 and 2016. That includes about $551,028 in 2016 alone. The Met is a public charity with assets of $3.73 billion, according to its 2014 tax forms. The museum's annual celebrity-studded Met Gala recently raised $300 million, the report says. The government foundation's grants also go to a huge cast of art exhibitions and performances, including a series of shows featuring um, the Cactus, hosted by the Borderlands Theater of Tucson, Arizona. Again, we missed it. What a shame. The theater's site-responsive performances, you know, if you add enough words around it to make it sound impressive, it still isn't, but it celebrates the tree-like cactus, which can grow to 70 feet tall. The idea is that guests pay to spend one hour in the Sonoran Desert. That's Sonoran, not snoring, because that's probably what I would have ended up doing with the cactus. Then share their experiences on social media. Wow, that's got to be a fascinating uh, site. The government contributed $10,000 in taxpayer money to the theater in fiscal year 2016 and a total of 90000 over the past eight years. Wow. Search for Saguara Cactus on Twitter, and it doesn't appear folks need much government encouragement to share about it. Besides the Met, rich and famous institutions receive federal funds since 2009. Open the book says, including... The Boston Museum of Fine Arts, $2.5 million. Chicago's Adler Planetarium, $1.7 million. The Art Institute of Chicago, $1.4 million. The Hollywood icon Robert Redford Sundance Institute in Park City, Utah, $3.3 billion. Excuse me, million. Let's get that right. The National Foundation on the Arts and the Humanities, $143 million in contributions in fiscal year 2016 to charitable organizations, included universities with billion-dollar endowment funds such as Harvard, Yale, Northwestern, Notre Dame, the University. University of Michigan. A total of 432 federal employees working for the government foundation earned $41.8 million a year in salaries and bonuses, the report notes. The average salary was about $96,500 for fiscal year 2016. I am in the wrong line of work. If I can award money to an organization that uh, can inspire people to pay them to go to the Arizona desert to stare at a cactus and then post about it on uh, social media, I could do that job. I could so do that job for $96,500. By the way, that's with benefits, increasing the average cost to $126,415 per employee. Just talking a little pork at the end of today's program. Tomorrow, we're going to talk with Dr. Michael Guillen. Dr. Michael Guillen. Uh, He's the author of a work of fiction. It's called The Null Prophecy, but he's a rather impressive guy. In the pursuit of uh, scientific truth, this Emmy award-winning physicist and author of the upcoming thriller provides a reasoned and scientific analysis of claims that are being made surrounding the contentious climate change debate. That's coming up tomorrow on The Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering, James Blind for producing today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of this day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.